The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day, Stephen. How are you this week? I'm just fine. You know, I think it's hard for us sometimes these days to pick our topic. You know, there's, there's never a shortage of things in the news, but you've recommended the topic for today, which kind yeah, did of you say? Did you say pick our topic? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Ah, good. It. <laughs> that was a softball. It landed in my lap. Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, agriculture law. Um, not necessarily all law, but very recently, um, as everyone likely knows, President Trump has appointed Sonny Perdue as the Ag Secretary, and it's given us an opportunity to talk about agriculture and uh, the food industry in general, Mitch. Yes, and you know, I think most people would hear that we're going to talk about agriculture law and boy the yawns come out and they go oh my gosh what could be interesting about agriculture law unless you're a farmer you know a farmer or a rancher and yet it couldn't be more further from the truth i mean these are some fascinating issues that are coming up in ag law now this year and i suspect we're going to talk about some things today that people do not necessarily think of as agriculture law or issues that are recommended or regulated by the Department of Agriculture. Yeah, I think that's right, Mitch. And, you know, along with uh, a lot of the topics that we take on, we end up uh, learning a lot about the tangential issues. And certainly with respect to agriculture law, there's obviously a lot of statutory law involved. And in terms of uh, its place uh, in the big picture, there's no doubt that fruit and vegetables and the um, significance of the great state of California and really all of the Pacific Northwest as a leader in agriculture, you know, both you and I are obviously very well acquainted with the Salinas Valley and certainly the central or or the um, the uh, central part of California, which is an incredible provider when you think about uh, the amount of uh, fruit and vegetables and that industry. Well, the truth of the matter is that if somebody 
anywhere in the United States has gone to the grocery store and, and bought a bag of lettuce, a pre-cut, pre-washed bag of lettuce or a bag of spinach, uh, you and I probably saw that lettuce or spinach sometime in the past week in the fields because it's that, That's right. that extensive. And when you think about the fields, Mitch, the other thing and a good way of thinking about the topic is the number of important issues and the interplay between uh, the laws of California from field to table because we've got issues of commerce involved. We've got issues of food handling and safety involved. We've also got water issues. And as you indicated, we need to talk about the farmer. The farmer and the farm worker. So, you know, we've got extensive labor laws and employee safety laws. So it's not just environmental laws for the safety of the food product. There are environmental regulations for the safety of the worker that has to deal with issues like pesticides and fertilizer. And so it, I, I think, I think we may have convinced people that this isn't just boring old cow and corn law this there's a lot of things that go on in agriculture law that affect every single one of us from the safety of the food we're eating to the impact that it has on the environment to the impact it has on the farmers and the workers so that's true where where should we start well why don't we start with with the appointment of sonny purdue i mean we've got an executive order we can also talk about trade also absolutely and uh the the impact, I think we'd probably need to go back to TPP, uh, yep. the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, because we do, I mean, that's front and center in terms of where uh, our nation uh, is placed on the uh, on, in the grand scheme in terms of, uh, well, our relationship with other countries, quite frankly. And, and particularly China, who's the largest purchaser of food products from the United States. So we, and our show a couple weeks ago, Michael Cohen talked to us about the impact of the United States pulling out of the TPP, China stepping into the void we created, and yet China is also the single largest purchaser of food products from the farmers and the ranchers of the United States. So that's obviously going to get more complicated from an international trade standpoint. But It, it is. is. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah, so let's start with Sonny Purdue. First of all, let's make sure everybody understands this is not the same family that is known in many parts of the country for having a fried chicken franchise. And there's a huge Purdue family ownership interest in a fried chicken retail operation. He is not related to those Purdue's. So there's a lot of people go, wow, we've got a fried chicken guy in charge of fabric. How great is that? <laughs> but I hate to I hate to debunk that and disappoint them. That's not the case. Yeah, no, that's good. Different Purdue family. This Purdue, Sonny Purdue, is the former governor of Georgia. Uh, raised, went up through the ranks of the state senate, and eventually ran for state governor. Was governor for a number of years in Georgia. Uh, originally from a farm family, so there's no question that he knows of the plight of the small family farmer. He has that in his background. And so he's not that surprising of a pick. Uh, I will say that, to just kind of on an aside, it wasn't a pick without controversy because as governor, he has had some controversial non-agricultural policies and, and things that he's known for that are going to make, I think, a lot of people step back and wait 
to see how he uh, functions as a federal uh, cabinet-level individual. You know, as governor, he got a lot of flack because he supported the uh, the what's considered the Bars and Stars, the the Confederate flag portion of the Georgia state flag. He said some controversial things related to race. Uh, and he had a number of ethics investigations related to personal dealing while he was either in the state Senate and as governor. So, you know, there are a lot of people that are, are concerned about his political background. But it, all that said, I, I think to give him his due, I think we ought to wait and see what's he going to be like as agriculture secretary. Because none of those things, not a one of those things go to the policies or issues that we're going to expect him to regulate as the agriculture secretary. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right, Mitch. And in the spirit of positive thinking, I would hope that he will parlay his experiences in in uh, governing in Georgia and his uh, work with the local farmers, as you indicated, as being an asset. Uh, of course, it's a much larger, grander uh, assignment to serve as secretary because of the uh, the vast number of issues that and the expansion of the uh, the duties for sure. Uh, you know, connected with this, Mitch, is the executive order signed by President Trump with respect to agriculture issues, and I think there's been. A lot in the news in terms of uh, how schools, uh, how food uh, is monitored and regulated in our public schools also. Yeah, I think some people might be surprised that the Department of Agriculture has anything to do with K-12 education. You can say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that Betsy DeVos and the Secretary of Education? And the answer is yes. But in this case, the U.S. Department of Agriculture issues uh, recommendations and regulations related to standards for public school breakfast and lunch. And many schools provide both breakfast and lunch for students, particularly if they're on a federal program where they get assistance. Uh, uh, history shows that a number of students in poor and rural areas, the, the best meals they get for the day are at school. And, and there's been a connection between if you're well-fed, you're better suited for to, to learn and to perform well in the classroom. So I do have to say, his very first action as, as Secretary of Agriculture was to roll back what many people considered healthy eating regulations for public schools. And the, the greatest concern was that those regulations dealt particularly with uh, content, fat content in school lunches and school breakfasts, other school meals, uh, fat content and salt content. And with diabetes, particularly juvenile diabetes and hypertension being two of the most expensive public health concerns we have and a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. David Auerbach talking about health care and public health, and he confirmed that, that you know, diabetes, particularly juvenile diabetes, many of the, the one type of diabetes can completely be controlled by diet and exercise. The other type is genetic and cannot. Uh, it, is, it really, really concerned a lot of individuals that that was a very unusual very first thing to do is your first act as Secretary of, Ed of Agriculture is to roll back 
what they concerned is healthy eating regulations for the public schools. So, again, we're going to have to watch. Now, let me give you the flip side. You know, we try to be fair and balanced, right, Stephen? Uh, yes, we do. Sonny Perdue has a long history as a politician of being a small government, low regulation type of administrator. He did it as governor. He did it in the bills he proposed while he was in Georgia. And so my, he framed this as being something that the local school, the local dietitian, the local school district ought to be able to better decide how to feed their local children and the federal government should not be coming in to say how to feed children in local schools. Yeah, that that is a significant issue, Mitch, because that relates to so-called police power, states' rights to govern certain in certain areas. So I think to uh, defer to the schools individually, I think, is a positive thing because there's probably uh, a need to assess you know, individual needs within the school district. So there we have the interplay between federal laws and state laws, and uh, it comes up once again. We do, and and it's, a, it's an important thing for everyone to remember. But the other thing that I think is important to remember, this is an administrative act. So, you know, he is the Secretary of Agriculture. He is entitled to influence the policies of the Department of Agriculture, and this is a federal standard related to federal dollars being spent on food at the local level. And so uh, I would argue that there's no question about whether he has the authority to modify these policies. This is clearly within his legal right and his legal authority as Secretary of Education, Education, uh, education excuse me, Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, but likewise, those who are trying to articulate public policy, they're going to have legitimate concerns about whether he's setting the policy with that authority that they believe matches up with public health concerns. Okay, so yeah. there's a big issue. And right off the bat, who would have thought that the Department of Agriculture very first action was going to be an educated rela- education-related issue and not just a farm and ranch issue. Okay? So we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Lots of tentacles. That's exactly right. So how, how, how does he govern? Let's talk a little bit about that, Mitch. What, like, what, what does the Secretary of Agriculture do and who does he have as, as a constituent base or, or who does he meet and confer with? It looks like there's a panel. There's a panel assembled. There you go. I mean, you 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 draw you connected that perfectly. I would encourage people to read the presidential order that was put out exactly after he uh, after the president appointed the secretary of agriculture, and he has this enormous panel that that they're calling a task force. That uh, you know, after the break, we can go into more details on it. But it's. Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, Secretary of the Interior, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Transportation, Energy, Education. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There are almost 30 people listed on this task force related to all these areas. Yeah, I found that to be uh, really, really interesting. I had no idea that that many people were brought to the table. Uh, And I think when we come back from the break, we can expand upon that issue. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We are talking about agriculture law. And when we return, we'll expand on that topic. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. 
College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our topic today is agriculture, and we're talking about the recent appointment of Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, and that appointment was made approximately three weeks ago, and we were discussing uh, the role of the secretary and the task force and the composition of that force and uh, what items and agenda-type items, Mitch, uh, they will be taking on. That's exactly right. So as we mentioned, it's a huge task force of about 30 people from virtually every branch of the federal government. And uh, 
the president signed this April 25th, the very day after he appointed Sonny Perdue. So this is a pretty tall marching order that the president's given the Secretary of Agriculture. To I saw that. That agenda, that's a tough memo. It is huge. A lot of people involved. And then let's just talk about a couple of the things that are in there. Uh, most of them, I think we will have no disagreement with, and, and probably no one will disagree, that we should have strengthening of rural farms, farmers. I mean, after all, without farmers and ranchers, none of us eat. <laughs> Literally, yeah. none of us eat. <laughs> um, so a lot of this, about half of them deal with evaluating regulations and rules that, that affect the economic survival and sustainability of farms. And, and you know, Mitch, what I wanted to do for the benefit of all of our listeners, and we've done this many times, is just to tout the importance of going on and actually looking at executive orders. And I think what's noteworthy here is that if you look at the executive order, the um, ray line or the title line is promoting agriculture and rural prosperity in America. Right. That's exactly right. Now, let's talk about just that first thing I said, the, the sustainability of farms. One would think that that is a completely non-controversial issue, right? Who, who doesn't want farms and farmers? Well, if you look at the actual nature of farming, there's an interesting tension between small independent farmers and large agribusiness. So when we talk about the sustainability of farms, I suspect this task force is going to find that you can have two farmers at the table. One may be small independent farmer, maybe with generations of family farming in their business. The other being a enormous billion-dollar agriculture business that may have farms, large, massive farms across the United States and mind you, across the world, because these giant agribusiness companies have farms in the United States, they have farms in Mexico, they have farms over in Europe. I mean, these are not the little local farmers we think of. So I would encourage everybody to watch this discussion very carefully, because somehow these regulations that they're going to look at have to strike some type of a balance between this perception of protecting the small rural farmer and the pressures that are going to be brought by the lobbyists and corporate money of the billion dollar ag business. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mitch. I think the two issues are inextricably tied. And I, I your point was that while the sustainability of the local farmer will be a focal point and uh, be highlighted, and, and it's certainly an important issue, there's going to be an interplay between larger, grander business, and I, and I suspect trade, right, Mitch? Well, that's exactly right. We talked about a couple weeks ago that, that trade, we're talking about, I think it's a $30 billion business of the United States shipping our food products to other countries, Mexico, uh, even Canada, as far as NAFTA, we talked about the effects that could have on NAFTA. Uh, the, the, one of the big fights right off the bat was over milk uh, between the United States and Canada. But also that China is the largest purchaser of our food products. So when the, the, let's shift a little from the agriculture business. When the, 
when the current administration wants to start talking about placing tariffs, 20% tariffs on products being brought into the United States, as Michael Cohen pointed out several weeks ago, it would be ridiculous to think that those countries that are receiving and buying our products from our farmers and ranchers aren't going to do the same thing. Yeah, that's the acts and reactions issue that we talked about previously. That's a great point. You've got to be mindful of the response from the countries and the impact. And I think that's something we've got to watch for because uh, there is a great potential downside, I think. So what we saw right off the bat was you know, a lot of positive press by American farmers on, the, on this executive order. And right on the heels of that, a little more quieter, but no less specific concern by farmers about the administration's trade policy. Because yes, you can help us grow it and sustain it and perhaps remove federal regulations that might help us have higher yields, higher volume of business. But what good is any of that if there's no one to buy it at the other end? Yeah, and you know, Mitch, I, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about commodities and specifically the corn and soybean industry and the U.S. Uh, position. We're obviously a grand producer, and China uh, is a major uh, recipient of, of those two products. And they are, China is also, uh, as far as meat and poultry goes, they're. Uh, their most popular, most common uh, meat or poultry is is pork, and the connection between corn, soybean as feeding, as as being you know served to feed, uh, is a really big big issue. So uh, China's reaction to our pulling out of the TPP and whether or not that stream still exists for local farmers because corn and soybeans are obviously a major, major product. That's right. And generally speaking, uh, the conservative administrations are against farm subsidies. They consider it a handout, right? And we've heard that in other policies with this administration, that they're against handouts. People should work for the benefits they get, right? Okay, I understand that. People may have their own opinions as to how, uh, where they fall on that, on that argument, but it's a logical argument. People should work. Farmers should work for what they get. Farmers should work for what they sell. No question about it. Well, in many cases, farm subsidies have the effect of the positive spin would be to stabilize prices so we continue to have farmers to provide food, sugar, soybean, corn, cotton, all of those things. On the other hand, it's pretty hard to argue that that's not a handout. So, so the market rate, the free market economy, which the tend to be conservative free market uh, spin on things is to let the market decide. We shouldn't give you a government handout if what you're growing is worth less than what you want to sell it for. And yet we've been doing it with farm subsidies for, for many, many decades. So I would say that another tension point everyone should watch in this discussion with the Department of Agriculture is this balance between reducing regulations to allow greater business freedom to grow more product, and is there going to be the same balance given to the issues on removing some of these 
handouts and subsidies to corporations. So, you know, it's one thing to give it to the small fa- family farm that we all feel this heartstring to. Uh, another thing is those subsidies don't just go to the small family farm. They go to these billion-dollar ma- multinational corporations as well. And they're incredibly profitable. They have uh, shareholders. They have boards of directors. I mean, these are massive corporations. And they get the federal handouts also. Yeah. So we'll stand by to watch that one. You know, Mitch, I was looking at the membership in Section 3 of the executive order, and we had talked about that previously. The number of people that are at the table or who serve as members of the task force, I was really amazed to see uh, the number of agencies and the, uh, the input. It's really amazing. They've got the chairman of the Federal Communication Commission on there. I mean, I get why there's the administrator of the EPA, and we'll talk a little about environmental regulations and the effect. We already talked why the Secretary of Education should be involved. Transportation makes sense. Transportation Commerce makes sense. sense. Commerce makes sense. Labor. Uh, Office of Science and Technology. I get that. Uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy. Yeah, I, I scratched my head a little on that one. Except after the break, I do want to come back to talk about marijuana as a farm crop. <laughs> you knew we'd get back around to it. Drug, sex, rock and roll, right? We're going to get marijuana into the discussion of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <laughs> and maybe that's where we're going to see the national drug control person come in. Uh, I'm not sure, but there you have it. <laughs> uh the others, the other thing they talk about in the the bottom half of this is let's again when we come back, uh, I want to talk about marijuana. I think we ought to also talk about the tension point on the EPA because the issue with pesticides and fertilizer are probably two of the most tension filled issues related to uh, ag and farm law because. On one hand, we need to have the use of pesticides, uh, GMO, genetically modified organisms, uh, pesticides, GFO, fertilizers. Uh, We all know that's critical to the yield of crops. On the other hand, here in the Central Valley, we've had issues with uh, nitrate leaking from the farms, nitrates leaking from the farm sources into the water source. And we've got a number of communities that can no longer use their public water source because of the runoff from the ag industry. And so that's become a major issue as well. So, Stephen, did we lose you? All of a sudden, got very quiet on that end. So I'll keep going and we'll pick you. We'll get Stephen back in here under the, under the break, after the break. Uh, but so let me talk a little more about these these key issues and kind of tee it up for our, our third sec- session. On one hand, the state of California is looking at uh, marijuana as a crop, both medical marijuana as well as recreational marijuana, as becoming one of the largest agriculture products that we see. So it's going to go from being an illegal drug under, st- under state law to be regulated. We already can have medical marijuana, and after January 1 of this coming year, we'll be able to have recreational marijuana. And the state of California is very actively 
going through the process of setting up rules, regulations, state laws, business licenses for managing this process, everywhere from the growing, which would be the agriculture part, up through the dispensing, which would be business licenses and retail operations. And then Mitch, every- can you hear me? Now I can hear you, Stephen. Welcome oh, back. I don't, I don't know if I was temporarily lost or what. It, you, you somehow found a way to introduce marijuana, and I don't know. I suddenly went offline. You did. I was sitting there going, Stephen, just because I brought marijuana into the conversation, you're not going to talk to me anymore? No, no. I thought it was a good segue. You, you were talking about uh, pesticides, EPA. It was a great discussion, and I was actually trying to chime in, but I just, like, I guess the mic wasn't hot. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, welcome back. Um, anyway, so after the break, as I said, I really want to talk about, particularly for California, the effect of bringing marijuana in as a farm crop. Because That's a very good topic. I like that one. Because we're literally talking about billions of dollars nationwide. And, and in California, it could end up, I just read an article, it could end up being the largest uh, cash crop in all of the state. Oh, yeah. And we, we've talked about that discussion once before, very locally, when we talked about Salinas Valley and uh, the fact that many, many farmers or land barons and owners have been approached by uh, cooperatives, you know, to look to... Uh, to actually shift their business model. Uh, so that's a very fascinating issue. And of course, if there's government regulation, we've got another host or major number of issues to discuss. So, uh, and, and it's also going to bring back what you talked about is this, this tension between federal versus state because the federal law hasn't changed. It's still illegal. And yet here you have a billion dollar industry that's going to come online while it is illegal at the federal level. And we're going to have okay, to talk about how to resolve that. Let's pick back up on that topic when we return from this break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about agriculture law. We've recently uh, had the appointment of Sonny Perdue as our secretary. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. 
The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about agriculture law, and uh, our discussion has actually uh, turned to marijuana. That is, after all, a crop, right, Mitch? It is indeed, and and it's an extremely valuable crop, both both to the to the grower and to the state. We're talking in California about. Uh, you know, literally billions of dollars of tax revenue once marijuana comes online as a regulated crop, and and that's something that is is really interesting dynamic because so you take something like marijuana that's a class one narcotic under federal law and therefore illegal still to this very day under federal law, you have an attorney general who has stated clearly that he is not going to use a don't ask, don't tell approach to medical or to any type of marijuana uh, laws. And he does intend to enforce them from a federal level. And then you have a state like California that is as state law, one that went into effect this past January about medical marijuana, one that goes into effect this coming January about recreational marijuana. That's going gangbusters to develop business licenses, farming regulations, you know, the, the standards of how much you can grow inside versus outside. The state law authorized the counties and the cities to set up their own regulations related to dispensaries. I mean, it's, it's going to be an enormous industry in the state of California. It is. It's going to be considered a segment of commerce, very likely. And Mitch, we talked about the issue of whether or not those involved in the industry can actually bank like a regular lawful business would bank. Exactly. So now you've brought another aspect into it, the whole commerce side. So you you will still not be able to, as a licensed California business, fully licensed, fully authorized by the state of California, you will not be able to have a business transaction with a federally chartered bank or savings and loan because you're an illegal enterprise under federal law. And 
And so the state chartered banks and savings and loans will have to step in and provide those services. But, you know, as lawyers, you and I know this is going to get very messy with this kind of a conflict between state and federal law. That's absolutely right. And, you know, Mitch, when we were looking at the members of this task force, and I think you had, you, you moved into the, the marijuana discussion when I briefly went offline. I apologize for that. I think I muted the mic uh, by accident. But, but there, there are some uh, seats at the table that may actually have a direct interest in uh, the drug industry. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not that's done in anticipation of issues like this or if that, that role might become beneficial when it comes to treating marijuana as a crop because I can't help but think that that's going to be an issue that uh, the secretary, secretary Purdue will have to uh, deal with. Yeah, I can just see these discussions being with one side of here you have really traditional farming arguments about we, you know, we want to have the traditional farming argument and the, uh, the impetus, evidently, of this task force is to reduce regulation to give the greatest amount of flexibility to the farmer. Would yeah. You, I mean, that's clearly the I impetus. Do, I it. do agree. And I think your point was there might be some incongruous uh, <laughs> tasks here, right? Again, I, and, and the when form- it's the marijuana farmer sitting at the table, I don't anticipate the federal government's going to say, have at it. We don't want to regulate you very much. We want you to have the biggest, most valuable crops possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the, the former title of the uh, of the uh, individual who's going to be on that task force is the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. That's the one that caught my attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the federal oversight, um, if in fact marijuana becomes a cash crop and ever gets to the point, Mitch, where you can conduct business, uh, and as I indicated previously, whether you can do business with a federally chartered bank, and you're right, as of now, the answer is uh, a resounding no, you can't, uh, but it remains to be seen whether that actually changes. Let's talk in a, the short time we have left. Let's talk about a couple other things that come under agriculture law. We mentioned them at the top of the top of the story, but labor law, labor law comes in squarely into agriculture. Uh, ag in California, I don't. It may be. I don't have the number in front of me. It may be the largest employer. Ten percent worldwide, isn't it? As far as the labor market. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And in California, it must be much higher than that. It's probably the largest employer in California. So here you have this the need for agriculture workers, because without the agriculture workers, you don't get food on the table. Simply end of story. And we have reports coming out of the Central Valley here in California of farmers unable to, to harvest their crops because of the significant drop in workers coming up from Mexico and Guatemala to work the fields. They've been working them for decades, entire 
crews come up. We are not talking about undocumented aliens. We're talking about individuals who come up on work permits to, to work the fields, to harvest the food we eat, and then they, they rotate around. They'll go from California to Arizona, and then they'll go back to Mexico and harvest crops, and then they come around. But because of the current, not trade policy, not ag policy, but immigration policy that's going on, these workers aren't coming. And the, the farmers and ranchers of California are sending up this red flag saying, we don't have enough workers to field the crops. And so here again, you're going to have this tension between the need for agriculture to have certain policies work effectively, a separate need. We already talked about the impact on trade. And now you've got to bring immigration law into the discussion as well as part of the ag law discussion. Yeah, there's definitely an interplay there, Mitch. And uh, I think if you look certainly in California, uh, the labor force, and we talk about actual field workers and those who are uh, instrumental in actually getting the crops uh, planted uh, and then removed and then out to market, uh, it, it's... Uh, Empirically, I think you're right that the vast majority of those workers are from other countries. And there's definitely going to be a return to immigration issues. And as you indicated, whether they are lawfully uh, in the United States or not, I think the issue is inescapable. Yeah, and, uh, and there's, there's pressure from the ag industry to have a more expanded uh, guest worker policy, right? So to bring immigration immigrants in who work in this in this industry and to bring them in and in this overarching anti-immigrant border policy uh, th that's going to be a hard fight so at the ag table they're going to say we need some more flexibility in bringing workers in and there you have ins and the other side of the argument going our whole policy is about reducing the number of non-americans coming to work in this country so Again, I'm not promoting one side or the other, but if we want to keep eating, this is going to be a policy that's going to have to have some resolution at the federal government. Level. Yeah, you're speaking about the tension between the, the, the fact that there's a demand for workers to fill these important needs, and there, there probably needs to be a pathway, a lawful pathway, uh, that may actually necessitate some change in uh, admission issues to the United States. and nope. about it. Yeah. And so let's talk, then, let's wrap up water. Okay, so let's end on the water issue because you and I know water rights are fighting words just about everywhere in California, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, another really complicated issue that comes up under the area of agriculture law. So down your way, just last year in San Luis Obispo, there became a fight between the grape growers and the environmentalists. Yeah, that was in connection to the agriculture ponds and reservoirs. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the agriculture ponds, reservoirs, because of the cycle of drought and rain and floods, you know, one of the policy, one of the things you do is you create your own water backup. You create a reservoir pond on your own property so you have your own water that you can use as, as the ebb and flow of rainwater goes. But 
evident the problem with that is by recrafting your land to start creating water retention in some cases it means you have to dig these giant lakes you have to take out trees you're clearly changing the nature of the land changing its impact on the the, the birds the bees the the everybody else the bugs and the environmentalists are very unhappy about that yeah there was a concern specifically over clear cutting uh, of trees to allow larger areas or larger land mass to be used for these ponds, the reservoir ponds, which, I mean, if you're in the position of the grape grower, the farmer, uh, you can easily see the need to have a plan in place where you've got the reserves of the water. But of course, how they create those reserves impacts other areas. So that's, uh, I think they they came to, a, uh, if I remember correctly, they all came to the table and pretty well agreed. I think the the major grape grower in that specific case uh, said they were sorry, <laughs> paid yeah. a fine, as I recall, uh, remediated some of the work, and agreed that they wouldn't do anything like that again without convening more of a community group to discuss how it might be better done. I think that's right, and I think there were restrictions on the size of the ponds also, Mitch. So, so that's, and as the grape industry, which is, you know, compared to marijuana, it's big, but not as big as that's going to be. But it's a huge, huge farming aspect. We don't think of wine as agriculture, but it absolutely is when you're yeah, talking about the grape growing that's side. A, that's another, uh, like I, I heard a Chamber of Commerce exchange recently, Mitch, on the issue of uh, tourism. You know, and the draw to certainly uh, San Luis Obispo County, and as you well know, Paso Robles is very, very much on the map for their fine wines uh, and the land that produces the grapes. And the issue of whether or not the grapes are uh, considered uh, a form of agriculture or whether or not they're actually a different category came up and there was a robust discussion over that. And that's not going to go away. And then the, the the other piece of water is just in areas like Monterey and Salinas, where there's a shortage of groundwater. And you actually have a tension between those farmers who are close to the coast, who if these are for people who don't understand how underground aquifers work, it's like a giant river underground. And not too much surprise, it all ends up in the ocean. These giant underground rivers end up going out to the ocean and if you draw too much water up in the far inland part it actually acts as a vacuum and sucks salt water from the ocean back into this underground river and in essence poisoning the the fertile land that's close to the coast because if you draw too much water inland it sucks seawater into where these pumps are pulling for agriculture water on the seaside and so here you have a tension of ag versus ag, of how much control do you want regulations to have in dictating who gets to pull which water. And so I think it's very, many times we think of water as an environmental issue of individuals and homeowners and businesses versus agriculture. And in fact, in, in our community here, it's really the balance among agricultural uses that come into the regulatory discussion. 
Yeah, you know, Mitch, I think much of what we discussed today can be encapsulated uh, into the issue of balance and compromise all the way across the board. I think that's what we need to strive for is balance and compromise. And with that, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Well, great conversation, Stephen. I think we've proven that agriculture law is not that boring topic that everybody might have feared when we started this show. As we suggest every week, if you'd like to rehear this show, you can hear an archive on voiceamerica.com business channel and on wagnerandwinnick.com. As we suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. 
I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 